Hey guys, it's Katie and Mandy. Welcome to the Dirty Britches Minisode. Welcome to our Dirty Britches mini-sode episode. If this is your first Dirty Britches episode, you will know that we have no traditions or rules here. This is always just <laughs> random leftover lingering thoughts we have about the week or just our lives. And sometimes we focus on specific women. And today, Mandy, I can, you know, my instinct in the last episode with Jane Grace with some where yes. I was like really dragging her pretty hard. And there's just something about her that rubbed me the wrong way. So I decided after that episode, I really was curious about her and I wanted to get into it more. And lo and behold, like the she universe was dirty, calling to me. Dirty, she, dirty bridge. <laughs> she's a dirty bridge. And she's also <laughs> like my, my favorite, which by which I mean my least favorite white woman she's from the upper midwest like us and there's just like a special place in my heart to loathe white women from where we're from it's like i feel a very personal connection like a like a deeper level of shame and frustration and anger with them so can i tell you a little more about jane grace wissom i can't wait the answer is yes, because yeah. you are locked into this. <laughs> yep, many we're going. Here we go. We're doing it. All right. So she lived in St. Cloud, Minnesota. We are both from Iowa for people mm-hmm. who are new to this podcast. And she's actually from very close to where my husband is from and where I taught high school when I was a teacher right after college. So this is like a part of the country I've lived in and I have a lot of affection for. And so it just especially like made me shake my fists at her. So before I get into her like why I just have a fiery hatred for this woman. Um, I want to read you two excerpts that I think summarize why this podcast even needs to exist. And this made me really mad too. Like it was just, I was feeling in the mood to be enraged and I got it. I <laughs> got that my mood fill of rage. frequently. That's <laughs> my Let's do mood. <laughs> oh my God. Lately. Yes. Okay. So these are two excerpts. One is from the Minnesota Historical Society and one is from the Library of Congress. The first is from MHS, okay, their okay. website. Jane Grace Wissom was a well-known woman in the United States when she arrived in Minnesota on June 22nd, 1857. Swissom, already an experienced journalist and editor of the Pittsburgh Saturday Visitor, argued for women's rights and the abolishment of slavery. To escape a troubled marriage and money problems, Swissom, along with her young daughter, moved to St. Cloud, Minnesota to be near family. Soon after their arrival, she became editor of the St. Cloud Visitor and later created a new paper known as the St. Cloud Democrat. Her strong political opinions expressed in her papers helped the early Republican Party dominate Minnesota politics. Jane Grace Let's just Wissom- stop to remind everybody really quickly here <laughs> sure. that back in the day, <laughs> yes, I know what the, you the Republicans were yes, more were progressive, the more progressives, yes, and the exactly. Democrats were the more conservatives. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Then it flipped. I don't know that history very well. I'm sure we'll get into it at some point. We but should. just so we're, we're all sure. on the right page, Republicans, <laughs> don't get all up on yourself that this lady was a Democrat. 
she no, was she, on your she, side. She, she was. She was. She, she was, was a Democrat, but it meant Republican back it then. It meant Republican. Lincoln. <laughs> Lincoln was a Republican. Yes, which will he's going to come up in this story too. So okay. Jane Grace Whistle is known today as an abolitionist, a feminist, and a Reconstructionist. Her ability to be heard at a time when women usually remain silent makes her a remembered figure in Minnesota history. And then from the Library of Congress, Jane Grace Whistle was an anti-slavery advocate, newspaper editor, lecturer, crusader, feminist, and Civil War nurse. She edited two newspapers in minnesota during the period 1858 to 1865 when these letters were written you know that are attached in the library of congress um, those all sound like glowing reviews yes she it is like just she a wonderful person lovely I'll, I'll finish up with the library of congress <laughs> here in her articles and letters swissom addresses many of the important issues over time including women's rights slavery and the frontier conflict between indians and white settlers no no sense of how she did that, but just that she addressed that. She crusaded for a woman's right to own property, speak in church and vote. She was an avid anti-slavery advocate who spoke out against the abusive treatment of slaves and their legal standing as chattel. There's this one sentence here. She advocated harsh treatment toward the Sioux in the aftermath of the 1862 uprising, considering the settlers to be aggrieved victims in this case. That Swissholm was a prominent figure for time is demonstrated by her familiarity with influential leaders, blah, blah, blah. Her book also contains articles she wrote as she traveled around southern Minnesota. So the the Minnesota Historical Society mentions nothing shady. Library of Congress has like this one little like BT dubs sentence. And that's it. Mm-hmm. No one, by the way, mentions the fact that she was like, black ladies, shut your mouth. This is a women's <laughs> right conference. You, I'm offended. Like yeah. her approach to black women in the suffrage movement we covered last week, which why why I initially suggested we call it janing somebody when you are a dick. Or I should say <laughs> a white ovary to somebody else. Um, but she, yeah, the, nobody mentions that. And then it's this very little like brief mention in one of these general sources that there might be something more to the story. So in a nutshell, she's born in 1815 in Pittsburgh. She gets married. Her husband sucks. Apparently they live in Kentucky for a while. And then that's when she encounters slavery and she's disgusted by it like firsthand. Mm -hmm. She then kind of is estranged from her husband and ends up um, becoming a journalist in Philadelphia, working for the New York Tribune. She's actually the first female reporter admitted to the reporter's gallery of the U.S. House of Representatives. And in fact, that day, one representative draws a gun on another. (laughs) So like, good day to be there. And then she ends up divorcing her husband and moving her daughter to St. Cloud, Minnesota, and then was um, ran newspapers and was like a lecturer on the circuit for abolition and women's rights. And she was, in fact, a heroic civil war nurse. We know that she also made these shitty comments about how black women needed to shut their mouths about racism at these women's rights conventions. But also this part of it, I had not stumbled across and was just incensed. So she, you know, she had this abolitionist paper was not popular for that. Like people attacked her office and destroyed her press. And then the townspeople rallied around her and got her a new one. So she was clearly like, uh, you know, willing to take some risks for that yeah. belief, but clearly it it wasn't like a full anti-racist belief or she wouldn't have, so what there she said about women. There, there were limits to her support for that. Um, mm-hmm. So here's what happens: 1862. This is a moment when white settlement, primarily white settlement, was pushing out the Dakota Indians, also called the Sioux. And there were um, a series of broken treaties, and the United States had promised 
food and supplies to the Dakota people uh, as partial payment for their um, for their land, basically for settlement. Mm-hmm. And the Dakota people were starving. It was a really scary, horrible situation. Little Crow um, was one of the Dakota leaders who wrote to the agent Thomas Gilbraith in 1862. We have waited a long time. The money is ours, but we cannot get it. We have no food, but here these stores are filled with food. Like the agent had these warehouses filled with food, but wouldn't distribute it because they hadn't used, they hadn't paid their credit yet, which it's all just so shady to begin with, like that the Dakota people are even in this situation. And so Little Crow is saying like, we are good for it. People are starving. We know you have food in those warehouses Freaking give us the food. We ask yeah. that you, the agent, make some arrangements so we can get food from the stores or else we may take our own way to keep ourselves from starving. When men are hungry, they help themselves. Mm-hmm. Crops have been poor the year before. Um, it was called the starving winter. The reservation that the U.S. government had put them on was really hard to farm and didn't support game very well. And that Big they were... Surprise. Yes, they were competing <laughs> with the settlers for hunting. So it was just like a shit situation. Um, and so even though the, the Dakota people were trying to share food with each other that they were able to farm, um, Thomas Galbraith refuses to distribute these goods to him and um, says, or, well, this other agent, I think his name's Thomas Myrick, Myrick is his last name, says, so far as I'm concerned, if they're hungry, let them eat grass or their own dung. So he's a quality catch yeah. for the U.S. federal government to be mm-hmm. working there. Um, yeah, the tradition he was, goes clear back. <laughs> yeah, yes. So the, basically, Little Crow and other Dakota men are just like, fuck this. Our people are starving. And they rose up. They killed five white settlers at Acton Township um, in 1872 in August. And then the Dakota people themselves were really split over what to do. I mean, it was just like a scary situation for sure. And so some of the... The Sioux were like, that's it, we're, we're done and rose up. Others didn't want to take part in it or even helped protect some of the settlers because they didn't want to escalate the conflict, but, you know, mm-hmm. clearly weren't happy about the situation. Um, there were various numbers, but basically hundreds of, of white settlers are killed by um, Dakota warriors and uh, Dakota people are killed too, for sure. So it's like a, a pretty intense. It's, it's this war that lasts several weeks. It ends or several months, I should say. It ends in December, right after mm-hmm. Christmas Day in 1862. Um, and then there's this Little Crow surrenders, and the federal government then conducts these trials. Uh, and this is according to Carol Chomsky, a professor at University of Minnesota Law School. She says, the trials of the Dakota were conducted unfairly in a variety of ways. The evidence was sparse. The tribunal was biased. The defendants were unrepresented in unfamiliar proceedings conducted in a foreign language. And authority for convening the tribunal was lacking. More fundamentally, neither the military commission nor the reviewing authorities recognized that they were dealing with the aftermath of a war fought with a sovereign nation and that the men who surrendered were entitled to treatment in accordance with that status. So what happens is that there are 38 um, Dakota soldiers who are executed. They are hanged in the largest mass execution in U.S. history. And Lincoln ordered it. Mm. And what the historians note is that Lincoln um, did not order any such executions of any Confederate soldiers or generals, despite killing hundreds of thousands of Americans, just Mm -hmm. FYI. Um, Mm -hmm. And then after this, 
uh, there's basically a concentration camp set up at Fort Snelling. And uh, then the the Dakota people are moved out, like moved um, into reservations, I think in South Dakota. I'll, I'll double check because we get I'll get to that in my notes. But this, yeah, this is um, also, I should point this out in terms of us looking at white women. At first, Lincoln said, anxious to not act with so much clem- or the, as, so much clemency as to encourage another outbreak on one hand, nor with so much severity as to be real cruelty on the other, I ordered a careful examination of the records of the trials to be made in view of first ordering the execution of such as had been proved guilty of violating females. Oh, meaning settler again. females yet yeah. when only two men were found guilty of rape which is also sketchy lincoln expanded the criteria to include those who had participated in quote massacres of civilians rather than just quote battles he then made his final decision and forwarded the list of names on to the governor and then um there was this scaffold that was constructed for their execution um one had been given a reprieve at the last minute um so it ended up being 38 men who were executed. Um, this is from this website. We'll link to the U.S. Dakota War website that the Zen Education Project recommends. As the men took their assigned places on the scaffold, they sang a Dakota song as white muslin coverings were pulled over their faces. Drumbeat signaled the start of the execution. The men grasped each other's hands with a single blow from an axe. The rope that held the platform was cut. It's this heinous, horrible thing. The bodies then were dug up and taken by physicians for use as medical cadavers. Um, or put into a mass grave on a sandbar in the Minnesota River. So that's what happened. That's also on Lincoln's record um, that he ordered that and treated them incredibly differently than Confederate generals and soldiers, for sure. Um, There were also the U.S. government put bounties on the scalps of Dakota people and, yeah, pushes them out to the Crow Creek Reservation in, yes, South Dakota. Okay, Mm. so back to James Wasson. So this is happening. She's yeah. living there. She's like a prominent person. She has a stream of editorials that is supporting this, um, the federal government's crackdown. And this is her editorial published as this is all happening. Exterminate the wild beasts and make peace with the devil and all his hosts sooner than these red-jawed tigers whose fangs are dripping with the blood of the innocents. Get ready. And as soon as these convicted murderers are turned loose, shoot them and be sure they are shot. Dead, 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 dead. If they have any souls, the Lord can have mercy on them if he pleases. But that is his business. Ours is to kill the lazy vermin and make sure of killing them. So she sucks real hard. Yikes. Yep. And I... Just want to shout out this um, journalist who now I immediately started following on social media, Sally Jo Sorensen, who runs um, Blue Stem Prairie, which is a blog. She calls it a hip but not cynical rural blog for those who prefer to take their corn with a progressive chaser and tongue planted firmly in cheek. And she wrote this article that's titled For Justice and Truth in Minnesota Reporting, Jane Swissel, not totally a profile in courage. And basically, these progressive journalists were trying to, like, uncover, like, water quality issues, which is a serious issue. And they were like, we should be more like Jane Swissholm. Like, mm. let's live up her legacy. And so Sally Jo Sorensen, this nope. quote is amazing. This is when I paused <laughs> reading and I was like, following you. Okay, mm. here's the quote. Perhaps a bit of private awareness of Minnesota history would have helped. Or just effing Googling. Period. Yeah. 
<laughs> so now yes. I want Let's. to follow. <laughs> and lastly, I will leave us with this because I know this is a Minnesota and I'm going on forever, but this lady. Okay. So in 2004, even, so this is almost 20 years ago, the South St. Cloud State University Student Senate debated the issue of whether to honor Jane Swisslum with a plaque. And they basically go on to vote and say, no. Um, And Bianca Rhodes, vice president of the student government, was quoted in the university paper as saying the marker should be removed because she had these conflicting views. Quote, you can't be a feminist and abolitionist and a racist in the same breath. It's contradictory to free some people of color and kill other people of color. And I thought, oh, Bianca, listen to our podcast. Like, I I get what she's saying. Like, it doesn't make sense. And I think that's the history we're trying to figure out. Like, Yes, this cognitive dissonance is so freaking common in white women. And Jane Swisslum is this like embodiment of settler, colonial, racist, abolitionist feminist. Like that does actually go together in history quite a bit. And so they take a vote in October 2004, 22 to 1, to remove this plaque honoring Jane Swisslum, which again is like almost 20 years ago. And then you've you know, recently these reporters were like, we should be all, all should be more like Jane Swisson. So I think this, you know, how to remember people, how to honor people question will keep coming up all the time in our podcast that, damn, Jane, I didn't know what, how dirty your britches were, but (laughs) for fuck's sake, they are, there's nary a clean spot on those panties, I don't think. Well, this is something that I, I struggle with like one of my favorite quotes is from Brian Stevenson who wrote just mercy, the attorney in that book, his quote, this is probably paraphrasing it a little bit, but he says, we are all more than the worst things we have ever done, which I strongly, strongly believe. Absolutely. But it seems like that Mm -hmm. grace is offered to white people all of the time. White women, as we're learning about, they all get to erase those detrimental things that they did that informed years and generations of policies and affected people deeply and still does today. Mm-hmm. But the individual actions of minority groups, of people of color and marginalized people, they're never given that. We never... Mm-hmm give them that kind of grace for their daily lives. And I know we've talked about that before, mm-hmm. but I, sh- but I still struggle with that when I'm thinking about it. I'm like, okay, so maybe she did some good things. Should we totally erase people out of history for the shit that they did? We'll talk about this more when it comes mm-hmm. up to like Dr. Seuss and his horrible racism, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but it's like, yeah, there's gotta be a difference. I mean, I feel like you have more responsibility when you're mm-hmm. in a position of privilege and when you're in, you know, and I don't know, held in some regard that you just can't, we can't let that stuff slide. We have to point it out, not to say that the right. everything they ever did was bad, but sorry, when you do that kind of shit, then yeah. we're not going to make, we're not going to do statues and plaques for your that's other it. stuff. Stat- it's like, I don't want to erase anybody. I actually think Jane Swisslum is a super important figure to study for these very reasons, like because of these complicated and contradictions like I want 
her to be instructive in that way. So I don't want to erase, but I think your point is there's a difference between teaching about people and like venerating them or commemorating them. And then how you choose to commemorate them really matters. So if she advocated for genocide, like what does it mean Minnesota historical society to the native people in the state that you don't mention that in your freaking description of her, you know, like it's, it, it's just, incredibly frustrating i don't i don't want them to not have an entry on her no we don't want to change i want her to have it like a fully realized you know wait like i want it to be honored that she did this damage in addition to like building things or doing some things that we might consider to be good you know i i think brian stevenson's quote is beautiful and we have to remember the context that he's working in. He's trying mm-hmm. to save people from death row, like in particular yeah. people of color who've been put on death row unjustly, unfairly. And that, you know, I would argue death row is bad just to begin with, but yeah. like, that's who he's trying to say, like desperately, please, we're all more than the worst thing that we've done. But your point is on the flip side, here are these people is, and we're talking about white women who it's almost like we have to argue the reverse. Like, can we for one minute talk about how the damage that they did? Like, can we please recognize and honor that? And I don't mean honor, like lift up. I mean, like validate to the people who have suffered harm to say, like, we see you, we see that suffering. We're going to name that damage. Like, I I think that these things, I want them taught about in complex, complicated ways. Yes. And I want that, hurt and harm noted. I want yep. it noted and I want it named as harmful. So that just to know, it, there was another article from Minnesota Public Radio that was just a couple of years old talking about how rarely Minnesota children are taught the history of that execution. And oh, anybody, I just don't know that I'd ever heard about it before. It's just that, that alone, like, Okay, if you're teaching about Jane Swissom, how how can you not teach about this? Or if you're teaching about anything with Minnesota history, how could you not teach about that? It doesn't mean, you know, that's all we ever dwell on and just, you know, are obsessed with that one story. But just to say this, these, this harm matters. It hurt people and it lingers today. And we, we have, we have something to repair. We have something to restore. We have harm that needs to be addressed. And even though I wasn't Jane Grace with Selm, like what, how am I the beneficiary of her legacy? And what do I, what are my obligations to make sure that that doesn't happen again, or those relations get restored? And it's hard. It makes me think of um, when we interviewed Sally and she was talking about rematriation and hopefully we'll get to talk to one of the, the editors of that magazine about like native land and the restoration of native lands and the respect of sovereignty. And it, it this, this story of Jane Grace with Psalm goes, it just went so much deeper for me than I expected it to. So thank you for entertaining me on my rabbit hole, my dirty rich rabbit hole with this. <laughs> well, I think it. it's like I commented on one of the, one of the episode little brief descriptions. Like we don't have to stop telling these stories. We have to start telling them correctly, Mm -hmm. which means Mm -hmm. the full story and giving all of these details and not leaving this kind of stuff out. And that's what we're trying to do. So thanks for joining us. Thanks everybody. Another Dirty Bridges. (laughs) Have a great day. Bye. Bye.